right. Um, there seems to be a buzz or a hum in the microphone, but that. Is that on me? I can mute. Yeah, I think it's on your side. That's better. When you speak, the hum goes away. So it's clearly on your side. Um, the question that you were having would be uh, from the frame of reference that you were in now, a young man living in the United States wanting to check out. I went through that actually in the late 1960s. When I was working for IBM, I was planning on doing exactly the same thing. Uh, I was a woefully under planning even in those days. But it was still a very high bar. I thought that if I could get 5,000 US dollars together, that I could retire. I could leave. Now, back in the 1960s, 5,000 was a whole lot more than it is today. But it certainly was not enough for uh, long-term goals, especially since I didn't even have the information about what I know now or what you can find out now then I was just wanting out. <clears throat> that was actually part of my waking up, if you could call it uh, spiritual. Part of my spiritual awakening was this whole process of something got to be better than life than this. That uh, um, even though I would how to say it? It was an extraordinarily lucky find. I was extraordinarily lucky. I felt it then, my whole family felt it, that I could get a job with IBM. As an engineer, many of the guys who were working for IBM as customer engineers had degrees. I didn't have a degree. They hired me anyway. I was making more money when I first started working for IBM that was more than my mother and my father's combined salaries. They were both working. My dad was making about $350 a month and my mom was making something about that same amount. I don't remember how much, but I think she was making a little bit more than he was. And here I was coming in at $800 a month. I feel like mine is kind of similar too in terms of not like... I don't think I'm doubling my mom's, but uh, it was a big deal to get the one I got. I mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. And so, sitting on top of the world, um, upgrading motorbikes and buying BMW cars and all of that kind of stuff, but I was still <clears throat> recognizing deep down inside that I was missing something that there was something missing in this, that I had more than almost any of the other kids that graduated from high school, and they were all still stuck in Dillon. That was the funny thing also, is, is that when I took the job, my mom and dad still lived in Dillon, and um, IBM posted me in Florence, South Carolina. They hired me to go to Florence, which is uh, the biggest city uh, in North, East South Carolina. Florence is the big main hub there, and Dillon, Darlington, all of those other towns are in that 
area. So I was actually then less than 30 miles from home where I graduated from high school. So that's why I would know about here I am after I've gotten out of the Navy, gotten uh, the job with IBM and still my mom and dad are still living in Dillon. And so that's when I uh, began to see that almost all the kids that graduated from, uh, from high school when I did were either <clears throat> still picking tobacco or on the farm or had joined their dad's business or something like that. And they had nothing. Where I had loads of opportunity and I could see that. And I was, but I was still recognized and we are all stuck in something here. There's something wrong with this whole show. And so that's how I began to uh, get into that idea. And so uh, quite naturally, without knowing much of anything about Buddha, in fact, I had read uh, Light of Asia by uh, Christmas Humphreys and was not particularly impressed with, uh, with what I got out of that uh, book, very magical and whatnot like that. And I was already, uh, let us say, uh, for years now being dragged to church by my mom and uh, not being impressed at all with Christianity, either what they taught or who they were or how they behaved. This is racist South Carolina. I could see the racism very strongly. Uh, so uh, this part of the story is what got me propelled to go. And so when I had an opportunity, I did. I started studying psychology because I thought that was the way to go. But then I got back into Hinduism and through that a different way into the practice of the Buddha. But for quite a long time, uh, I lived, the, we called it, uh, what was the word? Uh, Basically, just backpacking around, going from one watt to another, one temple to another, that staying in a hotel we could do from, or I would do from time to time, but mostly whenever I would get into a city, the easy thing to do is just to check into whatever water temple there was in either India or Thailand. But in fact, I bicycled just to save money. I bicycled from Bangkok to Watsuanmok, then down to Malaysia, and then back to Watsuanmok, spending uh, almost every night in a watt. Now, the watch got thin as you got into Malaysia, but that uh, I think there was one or two nights in a hotel. But other than that, it was generally one night after another, uh, just, you know, biking all day, getting to some town in, uh, in the afternoon or evening uh, and finding what the local walk was and then go in and sometimes set up a tent. Sometimes they'd give a room. Watt surfing? <laughs> what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watt surfing. That you, and, did you skip and, the part where you ended up leaving, uh, not to cut you off, where you ended up leaving the job or doing the teaching or is this how did how did you end up in uh with the time to go to india is a question when how would you schedule that 
I don't understand the question. Like you're you're saying you jumped from South Carolina and now we're in India. How do we get here? Uh, by way of graduate school and Texas and uh, then Michigan and ten years later. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it took not, some time. Not 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 ten, but uh, almost. So you took a break from the job and you went to graduate school. Is that what you're saying? Pardon? So you took a break from the job and then you went to graduate school. No, actually, I quit IBM to go to get a degree that I was very much impressed with the uh, the software side of it. I was hired in hardware and worked on uh, repair of um, IBM mainframes and whatnot like that. And so I had that uh, side of it. Lots of long stories, interesting stories that are can be <laughs> left. <laughs> uh, the uh, the the point I guess that I'm making is is that the money itself is not important. The importance is the strong determination. That you gotta, gotta go. You gotta do it, and also it helps if you have the attitude that you will be successful at this, that you can do this thing. That's more important than the cash. I know people who are actually wealthy who don't use that wealth. They just park it someplace and say, "Hey, I'm going to go off and visit the world and things like that." Uh, they wind up being tourists rather than travelers. There's a whole different mindset. Uh, the, the tourist will go on a tour to a, uh, let us say in Bangkok, they give guided tours to the, uh, to the more famous temples that are tourist attractions, right? I've never been on one of those tours, but I've certainly been in those temples. But I wouldn't want to do it with a tour, right? There you go. You go where you want to go. You don't go because you're following a crowd of people that paid the same money that you paid to listen to the same song that somebody has been singing every day for years. So that that part of it then is a different mentality of beginning to get out of the Western mentality completely. As if you were now no longer a resident, you're always a visitor. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you have both the quality of feeling very much at home and also very much uninvolved with, as if you were a guest, in any of the politics of the locals. And and so we don't uh, begin. We begin to change that style of mentality. And you're right about the four requisites. That in fact, the tent on the back of the bicycle is just enough housing. <laughs> I've never been so camped before. This could be an issue. Uh, <laughs> I'm a city city boy through and through. This could be a problem. Uh, 
No, that's not a problem. The problem is the fear, the fear of the unknown. You've not done it before. And because you haven't done it before, you're not sure if you can do it. I'm sure you can do it. You'd be better off than I was. Why do you think that? Uh, because you've got a whole lot better foundation of knowledge and guidance and you've heard my stories and uh, uh, don't make some of the same mistakes I made kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I can point you in, in a lot of different directions uh, within the world of uh, low rent. Okay. That I've, I've toured the United States in a 1976 Dodge van, for one thing. I did talk with Eric about that because he's out on uh, Roundabout, too. He's now in Prescott, Arizona. I just talked to him. Wow. And Jeez. so he's out, he's out doing it. He's been to Mexico and spent... Uh, I think he's probably going to go back to either that or uh, what... Uh, Atamayata when he gets back to Seattle. What Atamayata that exists? That exists, right? Actually, the whole name of the Wat is Wat Atamayata Rama. Okay, that's a very but cool they, name. But they <laughs> just call it Wat Atam. Achanrit is there. Reek? Achanrit. Okay. Now, why they get that name out of the, uh, they don't. In fact, they get the English out of the Thai, and the, and the English winds up being very strange with an R-I-T-T-H-I -T -T is how they get it into the English, but he, his name is pronounced Achan Reet with a rising tone, Reet. <laughs> <laughs> like, Tony the Tiger says they're great. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Achan Reed is there. Um, he's a, a big fan of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. There's a lot of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa in the United States in these various watches. I was going to say Atamayata sounds very Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. <laughs> it sure does. Well, uh, uh, what Buddha Dhamma in Hinsdale or whatever West something they've got the name of it changed. I don't think that they changed location. They just probably changed the address for some reason or another. I've already yeah. sent that to you one time. Yeah, you did. Yeah. And, uh, and also Alan. Uh, he spoke. Uh, but I don't know who's there now. Alan showed me, uh, that there was a scandal, gosh, 15 years ago or something. And that's about the only thing that's left on the internet is some scandal. Some lady didn't like what the monks were doing. Hmm. I think she was a Western woman who was married to a Thai. Hmm. And she just did not understand how things operated. And so she got into courts at battles, court suits. I don't know any of the details about it. Uh, but I do know that that's long, long ago history. Yeah. So if you run across any things like that, it's no longer a scandal, never was one much, but it made the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's one place. I mean, you don't have to leave your Chicago. You can just start visiting one high temple after another and keep going back to the ones you like the most. And so after a while, place. you begin to spend the night or two there. And then maybe a weekend or two. And pretty soon you're <clears throat> holding a weekly class of meditation and teaching the Dhamma and beginning to fit right in. You don't even have to quit your job until you actually move in. When you move in and start spending every night in the Watt, then that would be the time to quit the job because you don't need it anymore. Yeah. That I didn't know about myself, and that didn't actually exist when I was on the spiritual journey thrusting for it and back, let us say, in the period around 1970. But now there's a lot of, of Thai, Lao, Cambodian, a few Burmese, a few Sri Lankan Watts in the United States that are housed by Asians. Really? And there are, um, so... So, do you yeah. recommend... Do you, sorry, go ahead. Yes, I would recommend that. I would recommend that you become very friendly, uh, almost as if it would be like like a courting relationship with a girl. Exactly like that. In the sense that you have a date, then you have another date, then you have a weekend together. <laughs> you know, that's the way you go. Go slowly, but find the watch that you like. And you've got so many. I think there's more than 10 of them in the Chicago area. So you should have a lot of fun just moving around and playing around with those watches. And that yeah. would be the easy way to do it. You could do exactly the same thing with a plane ticket to Thailand. But then it's not 10 or so watch to go visit. You've got a little bit more than 1,000. Wow. 20,000. That's really how many there are? Actually, I'm not sure how many there are, but I have heard that there are 20,000 watch that no longer have a monk because really? the monks tend to con congregate together. And in the old days, there would be two or three monks out in the woods and they'd make a watch and people would come and bring some stuff. And now those, those old, old watch, uh, there's one of them that I uh, was very familiar with. The name of it was Wat, Wat Pang Boa. And that uh, was on Koh Samui. It was, um, let us say, a five-minute walk uh, to the beach. It had its own lagoon, and all the buildings and cooties and everything were just falling apart by then. This was a wat that Achan Po stayed at when he was a young monk. Mm. But no monk stayed in that wat anymore, part partly because the tourism had started to build up and somebody had built a disco that was too close to the Watt for people to want to stay there. But then the disco went out of business, but the Watt was already falling apart. And that's when I got there in the 1980s. Since then, that Watt, I think, has become property that's part of the international airport uh, on uh, Koh Samui, which means that it would be very difficult because they always build a fence around the airports. And so this Watt now is inside the fence of the airport 
and would be very difficult to get to. But if you could, you got a really nice place to hang out. Just no food to eat. <laughs> that sounds like one of those things that you go to and check out. Because like how the Buddha said you should go to the scary places. I'm just thinking of an empty, abandoned Watt. Sounds pretty <laughs> creepy. <laughs> oh. I was going to tell you about that. Uh, the, this happens with the Lao more than the Thai. This is a Laotian tradition that I'm about to talk about. And that I saw it in Denver, I saw it in Amarillo, I saw it in, uh, in Dallas, and I've seen it at other places where they get enough land, they were actually talking about planting one in the big uh, Laowat in Charlotte. And that is that they build a big, big warehouse kind of building uh, with the understanding that over time this building is going to be populated and upon first glance it looks like a dormitory with bed after bed after bed after bed after bed lining this wall, that wall, center walls, all of this. Huge numbers of empty beds. Except that the beds are not empty. They are loaded down with monkly kinds of gifts baskets, not of fruit, but of items for uh, shaving and soaps and that kind of stuff, all wrapped in uh, orange cellophane wrappers, pillows, uh, uh, robes, and this kind of stuff. And what these things are, are offerings for the dead. Hmm. As well as also on this bed will be an urn. And this is the Lao way of doing it. You see, in Thailand, they build individual chedi. So in the back of the wat, you'll have chedi after chedi after chedi after chedi after chedi after chedi. A little, some of them are small, some of them are big, depending upon what the family buys. And there will be a photo of the guy who's died and the ashes. Listen, I'm friends with all the monk ghosts. Don't worry about it. I'm not afraid. Well, this, this, but this room here it actually is not intended to be uh, fearful, but this is uh, for the lay people, not the monks. Hmm. This is for the entire lay community. Why would the, uh, the lay community build such a large building when they've only got 20 or so monks at best? No, this is for the entire population. But in Thailand, they put each one in an individual chedi in uh, 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 Laos, for some reason. They have bed after bed after bed that is supposed to be the bed for the person to lie on, except that it's loaded down with all of these gifts of pillows as, as well as an urn and the photos and maybe some wilted flowers or maybe some plastic flowers, you know, that kind of stuff for funeral stuff. Yeah. Okay, so this is a room that you can go and sleep in. There's probably a bed or two that hasn't been uh, designated for who gets this one. They're not dead yet. I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's an interesting one, to spend the night there. Wow. But there's been nobody died in that room. There's no ghost in there. The back, I mean, if you took all the ash and dumped it on the floor, you wouldn't have a ga more than a gallon or so. And that ash is probably not dangerous. 
But it yeah. gives you a chance to figure out what fear is. Yeah. Because you recognize, look at all this fear that we've got, and there's nothing here to be afraid of. Absolutely nothing to be afraid of. And then the mop that was leaning on the wall falls over. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there, man. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> wow. Okay. So there are opportunities in the United States now that were not there many, many years ago. Not only that, but the Asians are welcoming. This is not a, a shotgun wedding, as it were. Okay. <laughs> Uh, they're not going. They're, it, it, it's not like walk, walking on to ISO property or to private property. The, to, the watch are actually uh, considered more or less public property. But there will be some hurdles. There will be language barriers and cultural barriers. That the, the, the Thai people go to their Thai watch, the Lao people go to their Lao watch, so that the Lao people there can do Lao things that they can't do in the United States unless they're around other Lao people. That's part of the reason why these Lao Watts are there is they're as much a cultural center as they are a Watt. And if you did have a cultural center that was um, uh, like Laotian or Thai, naturally it would be a Watt because the Watts in Thailand are the cultural centers here too. And so uh, all of the old ladies, this was especially true in the Lao community. The old, and this was not just in one town, but this was all over the place. It just seemed to be the norm that the old Lao ladies would do their best to get the most authentic roadkill, weird animals, uh, strange plants cooked in strange ways. That was the old Laotian way. In other words, they were trying to recreate the old Laos, even if they had to specially import. But surprisingly enough, the um, the grocery stores in every community were often uh, there was an, an Asian grocery store. There's great, you know, in almost every city, and that those grocery stores are often run by Vietnamese who also specialize and will have a Lao section for uh, stuff. It's very interesting like that, that they've got their own kind of thing so that they import this stuff just so that they can show off. And so the way that I said it was is that I was always perpetually a student of Lao food. Mm. Thai food, I got that one. Got that one mastered, but Lao food, <laughs> still a student of Lao food. <laughs> yeah. Because they could come up with some really strange stuff. <laughs> so these are... that had weeds in it and all kinds of things. <laughs> weeds? <laughs> yeah, little strands of, you know, what the, what the hell is Is that what vending bot is like? You got to eat like whatever comes in, like, even if. Uh, yes, except it at most wants. The monks get back together again and then they share amongst themselves what they have. Plus, there will be additional food brought 
or maybe even in big temples like at Watsu and Milk, they had their own kitchen. Right? Mm-hmm. And so just because you collected this in your bowl this morning does not mean that, one, you have to eat it all, or number two, you can only eat this. Neither one of those are rules. Yeah. Okay. But there, but there is a strange story that makes it weird in the sense that uh, when the Buddha uh, uh, passed a provision where he didn't want the monks out at night, one of them complained because for him that was the best time to go out on Pindabat was when the people were eating their dinner. And I guess that there were some complaints about that. And so the the Buddha says, let's not go out at night to get food because that's when they're eating dinner. Let's wait till the next morning and go get their leftovers. Okay, and so this monk complained about that. And the Buddha says, well, you don't have to eat it just in the morning that you can actually get all the food that you want. Go on Benderbot and stay on Benderbot all morning. Get two bowls of food if you want. And then you can have it all day. And eat all you want all day long, but at night when you go to bed, you dump it out and give the rest of it to the animals, because otherwise the animals are going to come get the food, and maybe you too. (laughs) And so you dump the food out before you go to sleep at night. So you don't keep anything overnight. Mm. So that's the way of looking at it. But when you eat... Uh, is not the issue. And so Wakala Bojana doesn't have to do with the time of day you're eating the food. It has to do with the time of day you're collecting the food and where you go to get it. Mm-hmm. That that rule actually came about when some monks had gone to, let us say, the equivalent of a state fair. They went to the state fair. Four or five monks walked into the state fair. And they come back with so much stuff that they take it back to their fellow monks and say, look at what we've got. (laughs) And they share it all around. And some of the monks says, I don't want this stuff because this is not the kind of food that you get from the households. This is party food. This is uh, 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 stuff that's sold at the fair. Where did you get this? And they told him about it. And that's when the, the, uh, the point came is that you don't go bothering people when they're trying to do something else. Yeah. But the people who were there were bothered by the monks. They had to stop their going to the fair stuff in order to go and buy food and give to the monks. And that wasn't appropriate for the monks to have been there at that particular time. Mm-hmm. That's why it's the wrong time. But actually, it's not the time of day. It was the wrong event or the wrong place, time and place. So that that helps you understand that. But other than that, yeah, the monks eat communally. And I have had things put in my bowl like a half-eaten banana. I've had uh, a small fish that are about this size, and you turn it over and all you see is the bones because somebody's eaten the first half of it, and they didn't eat the second half, so the monks got it the next morning. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> well, that's part of the practice, I bet, right? Uh, actually, the practice that I had, coming from my snooty, high-quality position, remember, that I t- started with, with IBM, and now I'm a 
computer scientist and big whoop-de-doo and I make more money in an hour or a day than these people make. And now I'm letting them or I'm going to them to get my food. And so that whole quality of status, I had to recognize, wait a minute, there's, there's no status here. That this is different. They don't think of me as who I'm thinking of me. And how dare me think of me as that way when I'm out here just humbly getting some food. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that was that was an issue that I had to work over, work on. Uh, uh, that it wasn't the fact that the food was of low quality; it was uh, the fact that these people were generously offering it to me because that's all they had, and they were still being generous with it. And yeah. here I'm holding my nose up. Your your gifts are not good enough. Right. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a really interesting story. Um, what's coming to mind? I remember I have like a memory as a kid that like I'm remembering like as a kid like I think I wanted to. Uh, I had in my mind like being like a traveler that you were like you were saying like, when I was a kid, <laughs> something like that. Like thinking about. Uh, from well, how many cartoons did you see with a guy with a stick this long with a bandana that's got tied on the end of it? You've got it throwing over his shoulder, and he's just off on a trip. Right, that's the monk. Like on the boxcar or the train. Like. <laughs> right, the hobo from the yeah. 1930s. We don't have hobos now. We have homeless. Mm. And the yeah. cops keep clearing them out. Well, the cops cleared them out, in, uh, out of town in the 1930s, and that's why they would go to the railroad yards because it was hard for the cops to clean them out there as well as down in the woods and whatnot like that. My dad was part of that back in the 1930s. Yeah, the hobos, which is now the homeless, because we got the same problem. They didn't solve the problem. But the yeah. mentality of the people has changed. So yeah. that in the old days, people actually felt the freedom to just go and see and take a boxcar and just go all over the place. Yeah. Now they don't do that. For one yeah. thing, though, it's hard to get the boxcars, but the other one is the people don't feel the freedom to they go. They just seem destitute. Pardon? They just seem destitute. The hobos that I was thinking about, like, as a kid, is probably more like, you know, just going out and, like, seeing the world and traveling and, like, you know, going mm -hmm. on an adventure. <laughs> uh, there was a code that the hobos had that they would mark a house they would mark the the mailbox or the picket fence or something like that with with chalk to say these people are mean they don't don't go here or these people have um uh this kind of food and they're generous mm. and just a little sign here and there and so uh there was a a, a kind of uh, internet of of signs that were left with the hobo community i didn't i didn't i don't know any hobo history so i didn't know that they would go to people's houses they did that how are you going to eat homeless people don't come to people's houses nowadays well they'll get shot nowadays <laughs> yeah times have changed times have <laughs> changed exactly but this wanderlust 
doesn't. And that wanderlust is actually, in a way, part of the spiritual practice of the spiritual journey anyway. This is why we talk about it in the sense of a pilgrim. Out on a pilgrimage, going someplace, going from holy site to holy site. Mm. So this is an old tradition. Humans have been doing this for so long. Some have been quite famous at it. Marco Polo, for one. Uh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. let's go see what's over that mountain. Let's go over there. Have some bravery. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have to do with how much money you've got. It has to do with are you ready to go? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh-huh. Because guess what? You don't know what the future is going to bring. You don't know what money you're going to need. You don't know what choices that you'll be making with or without money. And yet the Western mentality is all about the money. It's the money, 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 money. Can I get enough money so that I don't need so much money anymore? What? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. But rather see what you have as enough. This is good enough. This is fine. This is all all we need. Everything's okay. Just enough. Little dab will do you, they say. Yep. If you've ever had bro cream. So, in fact, uh, uh, Buddha's religion is is, uh, an advertisement for bro cream. You don't know bro cream. Cream? Brill cream was a hairdressing in the 1960s or whatever like that to put in the hair to make it slick down. But you don't want to put too much in your hair. Just a little dab will do you. Right. Just enough. Just enough. A little dab will do you. But you don't want to do it stupidly right you know you want to be able to like oh you have to be very wise you have to be open eyes you have to be very friendly you have to know how to go places and do things and talk to people and and fit in and all of that kind of stuff and be at home with where you are be comfortable and satisfied with what you have did you know the language where you went oftentimes when did you learn thai actually i still don't know thai oh I know enough Thai to get myself into a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> okay. So I, tend, so I tend to not speak Thai, and the real reason is because my hearing is not good. Mm. And, and because of that, the Thais will speak so fast that I don't understand what they're saying. If they spoke really slowly, then I could pick up the words. How do you speak to uh, your wife and all that? We together speak a language that uh, is often referred to as Thailish. Okay. Which is a mixture of English uh, and Thai and pointing and uh, figuring out things and sometimes coming to the internet and using Google Translate. (laughs) And uh, sometimes we put in images like the last time it happened years ago. Uh, and the joke is about a helicopter. I won't tell you the joke, but here I am going to Google, typing in helicopter image, 
and join and she said oh yeah i know all right so but without that without that image who knows what a helicopter is translated to in thai <laughs> yeah that's funny Think, things like airplanes are easy crew and bin because the word bin is to fly and crew is the word for machine so flying machine is the word but um a helicopter is a flying machine, but it's not an airplane. <laughs> yeah. But really, it's the speed of the language that's the problem. When they when I slow it down, I can begin to understand better. So how did you sort of, you know, what was that like coming from America? You get off the plane and you're at the Watt now. How How are you communicating with people? Why should I want to do that? You got to be friendly, right? <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to jawbone a lot. Just be friendly. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's enough. Doesn't take a whole lot. of. If you're going to be enemies, that takes an awful lot of language and an awful lot of words. So but smile. friendly don't take so <laughs> Right. Just a smile is all it takes. Handshake or bow. All right, yeah, that's all that's right. Everything is cool, no problems. <laughs> nice, wow, that's the attitude. So, how did you have that such a great attitude? Uh, to start, it, it wasn't there in the beginning, it had to be developed. Oh, okay, but I was lucky enough to be around Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and other monks who pointed out that that's part of what needs to be developed. That's what the Sankapa is all about. Samo Sankapa is to develop the right attitude. So you could go so far as to say that that's really the whole teaching of the Buddha. His attitude, right attitude. The attitude of Dukkha or the attitude of Dukkha Naroda. Yeah. And you have the attitude that this is tough, or you got the attitude that this is easy. Yep. So, let's change this topic into one of the others that you were talking about, and that is um, how to spread the Dhamma and what is needed and things like that, especially giving advice to others on sexual issues, okay? Yeah. First off, within the teachings of the Buddha, we look at it as the Dhamma is a gift to be given. And that it is best given when it is best received. And when it is well given and well received, both people get joy out of it. Or rather say it's available. And that, uh, in fact, while sharing the Dhamma, if the student or the teacher is really paying attention to it, they can actually go into the first jhana while they're talking about the Dhamma. How can that possibly happen? Is because, first off, the Dhamma is all wholesome all the time. One wholesome thought after another after another. And that's the way of looking at it. And so we begin to feel really good about the Dhamma, being really one good thought after another after another with one good feeling after another after another. So actually sharing the Dhamma is a marvelous gift. 
because it actually can place people into a marvelous state right in the present moment. And yeah. it gives them something that they can possibly carry away, not only the mere, mere and the experience of, of good feelings, but also of handy information. However, Westerners, coming from their Western mentality and critical and whatnot, often give um, advice in the form of what is right, what is wrong, what is should, what is could, what is uh, critical, you should do this, you should not do this, and then it's not Dhamma anymore, it's just ordinary critical thinking. Yeah. So we have to be careful about how we're giving the Dhamma. And the most important quality of it is, is that it's best given as a gift when it's best received, which means don't tell anybody to do anything because that's not going to be well received. It never has been. You didn't like being told what to do when you were a kid. You didn't like it as a teenager. You didn't like it in college. You didn't like. You don't like it today. And you're certainly not going to keep calling me if I keep telling you what to do. <laughs> so I had to be careful not to tell people what to do, but to share the Dhamma as a gift instead and let them figure out for themselves what to do. Okay. That's an important thing. And so we can't tell people what to do. But we can offer the Dhamma as something that's liberating. Okay. In other words, um, uh, if, if someone gets themselves into a great deal of uh, desire, then I think of the song, uh, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. Have you heard that by the Platters of the 1950s? When your heart's on fire, Burning with desire, <laughs> smoke gets in your eyes. <laughs> okay, I never heard it. <laughs> right, but you see what wisdom that is, is when your heart's on fire burning with desire, smoke gets in your eyes. You can't see straight. can't see straight. Not only that, but things are painful to look at. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is a way of speaking, is to allow the people to see the danger rather than pointing out the danger or thinking that because you know the danger, they see the danger, and therefore they should be able to follow the rule because the rule was set up because somebody saw the danger. That's like when the road is out, right? And it's dangerous for people to, to fall into that pothole, so they'll put up a truncheon, uh, you know, a, a sawhorse kind of thing that's got stripes on it so that people can see it, all right? Yeah. That's all the rules. Guess what? The whole world is filled with the human minds of human people that have all of those roadblocks up all over the place. Yeah. All kinds of places that people have designated as the being dangerous, and the kids have to figure that out for themselves. You've got to go and fall into your own pothole. And then you put up your own um, uh, sawhorse uh, or uh, uh, sign saying danger, danger, don't go there. But this is a major teaching of the Buddha, that people do what they do 
because they see gratification in doing it like that. For instance, when somebody has anxiety, they see the gratification in thinking of something that caused that anxiety and then go fix that so that the anxiety will go away. And basically what happens is the anxiety only goes away while they're busy doing that fixed job. But when the fixed job is over, they come back and now they're back into anxiety again. Yeah. Okay. But they took on that job to do because they saw that as um, uh, a delicious way of avoiding the anxiety or they thought that they could get rid of the anxieties. And so it was delicious. This is what we mean by the gratification, that we do things because we have been told and we expect results. If I do this, I should get that. This is the gratification that we're looking for. Now, uh, in, in regard to uh, sexual activities and whatnot, Generally, sexual activities, for one reason or another, are associated with danger. They're dangerous things that can happen. Now, in modern times, those dangers have been modified by medical science. But in the old days and the time of the Buddha and before that, sex was always downright dangerous. Okay? You could, if you had sex, you could get killed by the father-in-law. If the girl got pregnant, she could die with a baby. Women were chattel property. If that girl is wound up without uh, all of the necessary equipment upon her wedding day, then she may get wound up dead on the doorstep of her old man who should have been protecting her. You see all of this old stuff that's come into modern society, all the old dangers that uh, all the religions knew about, Instead of talking about it in the sense of what the dangers are, they talk about it in the sense of these are the rules, kids. You can't do that until you get married. And, not, and the kids, they say, well, yes, I can do that. But now the kids are not warned of the danger. This is why uh, abstinent-only sexual education doesn't work is because they're not teaching the dangers or they're putting the dangers in a spiritual world rather than letting the dangers be real. Because the dangers still are real. It's just that we're able to mollify some of those dangers now, but not all of them. That sexuality and sexual stuff is uh, continues to have a lot of dangers to it, including the relationship itself. That the man and the woman come together and they get familiar, they get used to each other, and then one or another of them will wind up with some wonderlust, which is quite natural, and one of them wants out of the relationship, and so the, getting, the breaking up of the relationship winds up being fraught with dukkha. And it takes a whole lot of wisdom to have a good divorce. Very few divorces are good divorces. Almost all of them are, uh, let us say, uh, it's like bread that's been sliced with a knife because of wisdom versus be just being torn apart. And that's really what happens with relationships is they're just torn apart. The way one end of the loaf is torn away from the other end of the loaf. This is the problem then of relationships that a lot of people don't understand. The Buddha talks about it in this way. Uh, 
Uh, there's actually the name of a suit. I think it's number 87. Eight, it's in the 80s someplace. 86, I know, is uh, the An- Angulimala Sutta. Anyway, the name of the sutta is Grief Comes from Those Who Are Dear. There's where he is actually pointing at that relationship. If you develop a strong relationship with someone, one of you are going to be dead, which is enough dukkha for most people, and the other one is going to be sobbing in grief because of that person dead. Now, that person dying can be because they left the house. They, they went to work. But if you've got an abandonment issue, when that person leaves, you feel abandoned from them. And therefore, you start to grieve. So that uh, people who have an abandonment issue, they will cling really tight to a relationship, causing that, the other person in that relationship to really want that wanderlust or that freedom very quickly. And so people who have abandonment issues go from one torn relationship after another, and it's very difficult for them to establish relationships because they need one so badly. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that can be understood about this, and you know the particular situation a lot better than I do. But dwell on what the dangers are that he can see as dangers. And the way that you can get that is by asking questions. Don't you think it's blah, blah, or what do you think about that? So that they can actually, by answering those questions, begin to think about it, to begin to see what is dangerous. Because only after we see the danger can we begin to see the escape. Yeah. Well, the situation in this case was about... um he was looking at some of the benefits of abstaining, is, is what we were talking about. Um, is, is what you know he was thinking about, like taking this challenge on. And I was looking at it, and I was thinking, um, I mean, yeah, I think that's like a, a step in the right direction, essentially. But like from the perspective of if you're not like practicing, like being satisfied, it just seems like a really good recipe of just being a really dissatisfied abstaining guy. That's exactly right. So in this regard, the danger is is that he will abstain in a way that gives him a whole lot of suffering. Like he wants it, he wants it, he wants it, he wants it, and then I know you can't have it, no, you can't have it, I've set a rule, this is a challenge, and you see all of that one up, one down parent saying, no, you can't, and the child saying, you watch, (laughs) no, you can't, (laughs) you watch. Yeah. Oh, yes, I can. And I want it and I want it and I want it. And so finally he does the deed. And now he's going to be full of remorse because, I mean, he set a rule, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay, so there's there's dangers in, in any direction that you go in. So you have to make sure that he understands the dangers. That's the way to teach the Dhamma is so that they can understand. Don't teach, don't try to uh, point out the dangers so much. But you can dance around them so that he can figure out the dangers for himself. Mm. Yeah. Because otherwise we'll put it in there as a set of rules. Right. We'll go, 
people go uh, put our own uh, 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 sawhorses up in his mind, which he doesn't want. He's got to put up his own sawhorses. And so this is how we have to learn to teach the Dhamma, is so that the students themselves can see the dangers. Mm. And once they see the dangers, and he's already been able to see some dangers. If he can see some dangers in sexuality, which we've been talking about, then he's trying to avoid those dangers by setting up another dangerous situation. So it's like a good question because I know that they they set up. I, I feel like in this uh, this this group, it's like a group, and they and they kind of put out a lot of benefits that are to be had. Like at day 500 of your abstinence, you're going to get like these superpowers. And I'm just like, I, I mean, I guess maybe, I don't know if it's possible, but, you know, it just seems like a whole lot of uh, the same story that we played our whole lives. Like, do go to school and do this and you'll be happy on this at this point in time. Right. That's exactly what's there. So then the dangers in that regard are multiple. For instance, what happens on day 500 and no cities happen? Right. What if day 5,000 and no cities happen? What if he cannot see or discern any benefit at all after 5,000 days? Also, there is another kind of danger, surprisingly enough, and that danger is prostate cancer. Do you know that even though there is so much, um, let us say, publicity and news about pedophilia in the ranks of a priest within the Catholic Church, but one of the things that they don't advertise is, is that prostate cancer is rampant among the priest who abstain from sex, don't have it, won't get it, and then their things down there start to rot away from lack of use. Yeah. Yeah. So there's got to be a metal path in there someplace. Yeah. Okay, so that's the danger that you can point out to this group that, hey, there, there's an awful lot of Catholic priests that go a whole lot longer than 500 days. 500 days is only about a year and a half. You know, priests that have gone for 15 years. Yeah, They've gone for 5,000 days and they still have nothing. They don't even have any little boys. I mean, they've got nothing. Yeah, and They're not particularly happy. They're, they don't have any particular magical powers. Yeah. If they did, they'd fly out of that church, but they don't. <laughs> That's a funny one. That's a funny image. That could be a good cartoon. Like, <laughs> exactly. Right. You can see the you can see the calendar on the wall of the priest and he's checking it off and finally five thousand and he checks that off and then he wings and he just flies out. Okay, I put my time in now I can fly. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so there's a lot of dangers when people put pressures on themselves like that to do without something that's natural ingredient. We need to deal with it naturally at a natural level. 
Now, there's the other side of the coin that we'll talk about, and that is, is that look at the the sales and the promotions and all of the stuff associated with Savalas and um, uh, what is it? Viagra. Viagra Dang. Right. That's what they have in Thailand. The, the Dang means red. Viagra red means that it's manufactured in India. Mm. But okay. elderly men want that product. Young men don't buy Cialis. Young men don't buy Viagra. You don't see them in the commercials. There's always those guys that have got a little bit of graying hair, even though they're very handsome. Even in the commercials, they'll have the makeup artist put a few strands of gray hair in there to point out that Viagra and Cialis is for old men. Yeah. Well, now, wait a minute. Aren't these young men saying, wouldn't it be nice if that equipment down there didn't get up and bother me? And now here the old men are going, are going around and the darn thing don't get up and bother them. And they take pills to make it get up and bother them. <laughs> yeah. So it still has a whole lot to do with attitude. That in fact the um, uh, the whole concept of celibacy is that concept of doing without in order to get a future reward. That's practiced in Catholicism. Is practiced in uh, Hinduism. Is practiced in many places. And you could also go so far that with Buddhist monks that they kind of sometimes practice it there. But there's another attitude that you can take, and in that sense, you don't call it celibacy. You call it freedom. Freedom! <laughs> yeah. Right? Why? Because I can see where I'm going without having my heart get on fire, burning with desire. Yeah. Right, because when our heart's on fire burning with desire, then we can't see what we're doing. That's where I, that's where I feel like I'm at with the whole situation. But yeah, <laughs> or I don't know. That's the I, I mean, it, it just seems it, it just seems um, foolish to think otherwise at this point for me, at least. Like it just seems like you're uh, you're hurting yourself if you go and you with the whole point of the Dhamma, the whole point of uh, of of how of the second noble truth is this liking that's followed by this desire that's followed by this sense of self that wants it. Right. So you are inherently just hurting yourself by driving towards, especially if you pursue it. At that point, if you're pursuing it, then you're just saying, you know, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> like, uh -huh. Exactly. Well, you see, you've been working through that stuff over the course of the time in the past few months that we've been talking together, and you've been able to see that for yourself. He probably is not going to be able to see it as clearly as that yet. So he has to be able to see clearly that many of the things that he, he wants are are dangerous for instance um 
he's making a choice about long term. He's not saying, oh, I can resist the temptation right now. And we can deal with that as a kind of a microcosm, because that's really all that needs to be dealt with is what's happening right now. Yeah. And yet he's putting all of this future on it, 500 days or whatever in there. Yeah. And we can also see that um, that if we deal with it incorrectly, uh, that in fact, uh, getting all hot and bothered and then not ejaculating is possibly what is causing the prostate cancer, but they don't know this yet. They haven't done enough research. They've barely been able to touch off that the real issue is, is that, uh, uh, that there is lack of, um, well, let us say that celibacy is connected with prostate cancer. But cities are only connected with celibacy in the minds of those who were greedy for the cities. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's the only connection that's there. If I do without the very, very best that life has to offer, then life will finally give me something a whole lot better. Bliss or cities or powers or whatever like that. So yeah. you can also approach it in the sense, well, if you had such powers, how would you feel? And can you feel that way without those powers? I don't think it's actual powers. I think it was just like, you know, it might be, it, like we're not talking about flying hair exactly. I'm talking about maybe like. How about jumping? <laughs> I think it's. I think what it's about is like, you know, maybe confidence, maybe more drive to do your work, maybe like more mental clarity, like that kind of like basic but, life improvement type stuff. But that's the way that the Buddha defines it. Those are the real powers. Okay. That in fact, the Pali word is uh, uh, idia that is in. Well, that's um, what I'm saying. Then you might as well practice Anapanasati with the Buddha talk. <laughs> but hey, I know. <laughs> okay. In, in, the, in the Sanskrit, the word is siti, but in the Pali, it is iti. And that the iti, idiopada, the foundations are, um, um, of these powers, the foundation of these powers are the same as you find in the Eightfold Noble Path. You'll definitely find mindfulness as one of the foundations of the power. You will find investigation as one of the foundations of the power. You will find right effort as one of the foundations of the power. And you will find... Um, um, that these foundations of the powers are exactly the same thing as the skills that we need to develop anyway. And that the Idiopada is mentioned right there in the Anapanasati Sutta as one of the things that we're practicing for Anapanasati is for the fulfillment of the Idiopada, the power, right. real power. What is that real power? The power that we're actually talking about now is the power of feeling safe and secure. 
Ere though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Not because of that rod. <laughs> I think I missed that one. Is that a Bible? Oh, oh yeah, that's a Bible. Oh, this okay. is Psalms 23rd. Sorry, I should have done that. I'll go for the whole thing. <laughs> Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff to comfort me. And then I said, but it's not that kind of rod, you see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in... Yeah. That in fact, um, the rod or the staff here is the rod or the staff that the shepherd carries to keep the uh, the uh, the goats and the sheep separated from the wolves. Mm. Okay, so he has that rod or the staff as protection, and that's yes. all he needs. And so he can walk through the valley of the wolves and fear no fear no evil. So this is actually what the idiot has to do with, is becoming fearless, the power. This is the way that we look at it. But a guy who is celibate and is uh, worried that, oh, I've been 374 days now, (laughs) only got 190 left to go, and wow, this is terrible, but I can endure. And so he's got so much dif- discomfort, you see, because he wants something. Yes. He wants these powers that would come naturally if he understood them better. And so the real power is the power of success. The real power is the power of the feeling of safety, security, satisfaction, comfort, being at ease and in fact the key word is satisfaction why because dukkha is just the opposite of that things are dissatisfaction so the guys who are practicing celibacy are coming to it from the perspective of dissatisfaction i want something and i'm willing to give up my cock to get it yeah yeah that's Mm -hmm. it and so He's he's doomed to, um, maybe he won't think of it as failure immediately, but he's certainly doomed to having dukkha. As opposed to waking up and say, hey, wait a minute, I don't need this thing. Yeah. I'm okay without it. You'd be surprised how flat that thing will go when you stop thinking about it. Yeah. When you get your mind off of it and onto onto something more wholesome, more pleasant, then it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's not a bother. It's not a big obstacle. (laughs) It's a little counterintuitive. (laughs) A little counterintuitive to say, like, this is the, like, I don't know. I I guess it's kind of like a not-to-do list at the same time. But if you make it a big thing, then it's kind of like it's going to come you're going to think about it. Now I, I can't do this thing. Well, on the not to do list would then be to, to not think about it. Right. Hey, I got better things to think about than that girl that came to the Watt three weeks ago. I don't even remember what she looks like now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So out of sight, out of mind. And yet in our culture, he likes that phrase. Maybe I should just, uh, tell him that. <laughs> what's what's that? 
out of sight, out of mind. That's what he would say a lot. Okay, well, if that's the case, if he knows that much about it, then withdrawing from the society and not being around women, not seeing them on the internet, not seeing them on uh, uh, the TV, not seeing them da- uh, dancing or shaking their booties or advertising or um, anything like that, that he completely secludes himself from it, things don't get out of hand or in hand, whichever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yes, out of sight is the right way to do it is, again, seclusion. Mm -hmm. And then it's not so much of a bother. But living in the world with all of that advertisement and it uh, floods the mind, invades the mind and and remains. And things tend to build up from there. Yep. Wow, so many puns today. <laughs> Build up from there. I know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. So I recently... Uh, I had a pretty good... Um, a very good day yesterday. And then... I don't know. I feel like we talked... We've had the same story before. But I had a very good day. And I was feeling really good. And then I started watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos. And I was still feeling really good. Like, while I was watching it, I was, like, watching videos about, like, puppies or, like, animals, like, vet care. And I was like, oh, this is wholesome. This is very wholesome. I was like, okay. But then, like, soon enough, like, Lexi, I know it's, like, midnight and I'm still watching videos. But now I'm watching, like, some other, like, videos that's stirring up my mind and concocting my mind. And then I just, I was like... It's like it's a slippery slope, and it just it just gets deeper and deeper, and it, it and like it, it just seems like smarter. Yeah, to that's right. Move. Where do you draw the line? I mean, it can get bright. I'm uh, bright things like puppies dancing and playing and and uh, joy and all of that, and then it a little bit darker and a little bit darker and a little bit darker and a little bit darker <laughs> until now you're look you're um, in a very dark place where you've got two politicians arguing with each other over. Uh, this bill or that bill or even worse than that. I mean, things it's get dark in a hurry. <laughs> I went from puppies to just like guys arguing on the internet. It was really bad. Um, and so, and so, I don't know. After that, I just saw like how good of a day I was having until I did that. I was like, wait a minute. Like maybe what I did was I went on my YouTube and I made it so that I only like look at my subscriptions and my subscriptions are like Dama stuff and then one like race car guy. So I left it at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, in the beginning, it is very, very useful to stay away from arguments um, and uh, discussions that pe- two people are have when each one of them is holding a position because they're not going to be able to convince each other of anything and all they can do is make you while you're watching it feel bad and perhaps confused or you'll take a side and yes you agree with this guy and then you don't agree with this guy and all of that. It's better to leave those kind of discussions alone unless you're already beyond it. 
And the way to get beyond it is by being able to turn it off or put it down at any second. Yeah. As soon as you recognize that this this is no good for this mind, and off you go. I started to see that, and when I when I saw, it, I think it was actually kind of valuable because it seemed like it applied to not only just watching arguments and stuff, but I could almost I don't know in my mind it's like at this point what's happening is like why did I even why did I go there in the first place is the first question I asked myself. Why did I even pick up the phone in the first place? And I was thinking, well, maybe if next time I go for the phone, I check, am I satisfied right now? And maybe if I get satisfied, I don't need to pick up the phone. That's a very important. That's excellent. Right. That, that you can actually use, you can incorporate the, the phone itself as an anchor. Just like we originally start using the breath as an anchor. So every time that you pick up that cell phone, you can do a bit of Anapanasati right then and there. You can yeah. do an investigation. Why did I pick up this phone? What am I wanting? Yeah. Am I okay right now? Everything is happy? Yeah, exactly. I pick up the can phone. I, can, I, can I make a, a, a check? Can I make sure everything is okay? Yeah. And exactly. then we can continue doing that while we're on the phone because there's more than likely something unwholesome going to come back. I mean, the whole internet is based upon that. Arguments. Yeah. Unwholesome. Critical thinking. We got to make this thing better and better. We got to find out where the lies and where the truth is. Another thing I noticed is what it felt lies, like. They say. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I noticed was like, it seems like when I go to a YouTube I mean, maybe it's not the same when it's a Dhamma video or whatever, but like when I go to a movie, I go to a video game, I go to something else, it feels like what I'm doing is offering my mind, like in my hand, like here, do what you will with it. Like, right. concoct my mind, please. Yes, exactly so. And people in general want that. Why? Why would they want that? It's because they're dissatisfied with the shape that it's in now. With the thought of, oh, I am bored, let me turn on the TV and give my mind to the TV. Right. So exactly. that, that that will take my mind away and then I don't have to deal with it anymore. But then they determine how you feel. Exactly so. <laughs> so they can just take a sledgehammer to it and... <laughs> they often do. Exactly. I only want to give my mind to the to the guys that I trust, like, you know, <laughs> Santi Caro and Big Buddha. Then don't watch shampoo commercials. Who? Don't watch shampoo commercials. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Unless, of course, they're advertising a shampoo that you could use on a crusty old bear, and that's who they show you getting shampooed. Normally, they don't show a crusty old bear or a dog getting a bath. They find the cutest young girl that they can find with the longest, silkiest hair, right? They do that on purpose. Yeah. They do it with the idea that girls, if you buy this, you'll look like this girl on TV. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, to the boys, they say, you can have a girl like this on, one on TV if you buy our product. Yep. 
And nobody believes any of that, but they still wind up wanting that girl or wanting to be that girl. Yeah, that's why uh, it's time for me to get away from it all pretty soon here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the ads are the worst. So uh, your your city guy who is wanting to practice celibacy, keep him away from the television. I'm just going to tell him out of sight, like out of mind. Small, right, out of sight, out of mind, exactly. If you don't see her, you don't think about her. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. So the next thing I wanted to talk about, though, was Anapanasati and make sure that I'm practicing correctly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like because recently my um, my sit today, I find it interesting, like how I mentioned like yesterday, I was like really good. And then like, do you find that like after you take like a path like of not being mindful that it takes like you got to get back on the path kind of even if it's just like a, a half a day? <laughs> I guess you gave me a good a good analogy with that one time. You remember the piano player and he says he says if he doesn't practice for one day the <laughs> the maiden <mate will> notice. <laughs> oh yes, right. That was uh uh Rubenstein. That yeah. impressed me when I heard that from him. Cuz he was not as old as he was, I mean, he died in the 90s. He was in his 90s when he died, but he was in his 70s or 80s when he was talking about this. That if he misses even a day of practice, he'll know it. If he misses two days of practice, the housekeeper will know it. If he misses three days of practice, the dog will know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yes, we can, we can see that way within our own mind. Is Except that with the practice of Anapanasati, um, kind of the thought that comes often is, there it is again. Yeah, I did have that. That in-breath, right. There it is. Yeah. I've I, noticed it over and over and over again. Yeah, there it is, that in-breath. <gasps> yeah. I was kind of, uh, like yesterday, I was kind of impressing myself a little bit with, like, my... Because I, I actually, like, I think that I... I watched most, like, a lot of my breaths, like, for, like, the beginning of the day for the most part, like, most of them, but just, like, not even necessarily sitting down, but actually just out upon a sati throughout the day, just, like, watching the breath, and I thought that was really great, but I have not really been able to do that as well today, I don't know, <laughs> but. You don't have to watch it all day, just this one. Just this one, Yeah. Just this one. There it is. There it is. Okay. Just this one. That's a, that's what I'm going to go by now. Um, yeah. So with my Anapanasati practice, um, what I do is now what I'm kind of looking at is like I obviously want to start seizing, seizing the breath. I think sometimes I, I feel like I'm not sure about if I'm spending too many mind moments seizing the knowing that this is a long breath because it really shouldn't take that long to know just be like one like just know that this is a long breath or do you like really try and be like i don't know i feel like i try and say it like say like this is a long breath like that's helpful to like fully comprehend that this is a long in breath but um i feel like you could also just kind of tap in and just touch in and know this is a long breath okay and then on to the next 
Well, when the when we are actually taking the long, deep in-breath, and we know that it's a long, deep in-breath, that's actually a thought. It may not be a verbal thought, but it certainly is a mind moment of paying attention and what's aware. In that regard, you can know that you know that this is a long in-breath and that you know that that's the only thing that you know right now, that this is what we're thinking is this is a long, deep in-breath. And then the mind might start up in something verbal. The question is, is that when it starts into the verbal, is this verbal wholesome or is this verbal unwholesome? But so long as you're actually paying attention to the breath itself, you don't have to worry about what kind of thought it is because it's going to be a wholesome because it's right here now watching the breath. That's a wholesome thought. The unwholesome is coming when we go into the past or into the future or into the thinking or, or whatever like this. But this particular moment is okay when we're thinking about the breath. But generally the mind will start up. The question okay. is, does it start up wholesome intentionally? Because you can actually intentionally start it up with, with having good wholesome thoughts about the breath itself. Wow, this is a nice breath. You can begin to describe the breath. You can begin that's, to describe. That's my next question. So, like, in terms of, uh, but skill development and practicing and seizing at each step, I'm kind of noticing what I do like to do, though, is come in and say, okay, I could come in off the beginning and just saying, like, okay, uh, like, um, or at least maybe for more so the out-breath, I would say. The out-breath, I like to go, like, and, and the, like, I maybe like to start with, like, the job is done, like, and the job is done, I feel, like, really satisfied. Mm-hmm. But then, like, maybe I'll, I'll get, like, in my mind, I'll be like, okay, but, like, and I also know that this is a long out-breath. <laughs> or, like, you know, it's like, am I ordering it correctly? Like, should I say... This is going to be a long out breath, and then the job is done, or is the job done, and then the, this is a, you know what I mean? What difference does it make? Or another way of thinking of it is, is that recognize that that is a thought of doubt. A doubt of insecurity, a doubt of I don't know which way to do it. Yeah. Where in fact, it really doesn't even matter which way you do it. But what is better is to choose one and do it without doubt. The doubt becomes the hindrance right then and there. And those thoughts of doubt, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, the whole show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So recognize that, that doubt as doubt. And recognize the doubt as a hindrance. Asking questions in that state um, is, ba is basically doubt. We can say, if I'm asking myself questions about my practice while I'm practicing, then that's doubt. Because I actually do know how to practice. Been over it and over it again. I've been successful before. So why should I be picking on this stuff when I could just be enjoying myself instead? Yeah. Trying to get it right. Right. Yeah. 
trying to get it perfect. Yeah, but we talked about that. We talked about slowing it down and getting the fingering right, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's why I'm just like, that's why I'm trying to like say like, okay, like if I really break this down, if I really slow this down, what's the right way to do it? That's why I'm asking the question. Okay. Uh, the answer is, is that the mind is actually complicated enough to do more than one thing at a time. Okay. Or at least it appears that way. In, in, a, in a mind moment, several things will have to happen. And so... Um, a lot can uh, can go in that direction of um, things begin to happen kind of together. For instance, it takes a while for a breath. And you can have a lot of different thoughts during that breath. But if you have if you start to have thoughts about what should I do first or what should be done next uh, is a doubt that keeps us from actually uh, saying the things that need to be said. Instead of having doubtful thoughts about, should I take a deep breath and then gladden the mind? Or should I gladden the mind and then take a deep breath? And you're not doing either one of them. <laughs> you're, you're in doubt. Instead yeah. of saying, I'll do one this time and I'll do the other next time and I'll play with it. And I'll figure it out. Okay. Because one that's coming to my mind right now is to say, just say like, wow, this is a really nice, long out breath. Yes, this now is good. I got both in there. <laughs> it's nice and it's long. <laughs> nice and long. And the, and the mind is so relaxed and so easygoing. Don't have to whack it right now because it's good. Yeah. But then if those thoughts of doubt come in, like we just are talking about you whack those ah i see you doubt right and i and i'm being doubtful over uh this or that when this this or that in the order that they're in is completely irrelevant and easily investigated yeah we we know that it's irrelevant too because we're not even practicing like steps one through 16 in that order anyway so we're not doing it in that order anyway we're one by one as they occur as things arise yeah yeah now, i think that, that regard, the question of doubt was stemming from that actually that one by one because it's like oh wait i'm doing like i i don't know if i can do two at a time or whatever but it's okay if you do two at a time uh okay um that should not be too much of an issue. Uh, one by one as they occur um, can, be, can be thought of depending upon uh, the time duration. In other words, what is synchronicity? Is it nanoseconds? Is it half seconds? Is it tenth of a second? That kind of thing. We don't really care about what the word simultaneously or together actually mean because they can in fact have an overlap or they can merge from one to the other or they can go seamlessly back and forth and so which one you do first is not so important but recognizing that you have doubt about which one comes first as a hindrance and that aha i see that 
Yeah. Mm. And the doubt is actually wanting something that you don't have, saying, if I do this first or if I do that first, then what will I get? In the sense of, hey, I don't have to have that kind of doubt. I can, you know, gladden the mind and take a breath, and it doesn't really matter which order that they're in. And often they, like I said, uh, for a more advanced student especially, they kind of happen together. Yeah. Yeah. um, At least sometimes. Other times they don't happen together. Yeah. Because I think that what I might have been doing was like starting to think more about what I'm doing. Like, I don't know, think more about the steps. Like in between, like, okay, now move to this, now move to that. I don't know. Okay. That that's part of the skill development as these things grind in. Uh, it's not so important that you visit them in or out of any particular order so long as you cover them all or that you only cover part of them. All of these things become kind of irrelevant because eventually over five or ten minutes of practice, you're going to be touching all of them here and there that you are going to see a nature, you're going to see things change. You're going to see that you're letting go and relinquishing. So the even the higher steps of Anapanasati will be there. But the one thing that we want to um, operate first is to understand that the number one skill is sati. That's the big one, to keep coming back, to coming back, to coming back. And when we're in doubt, guess what? Sati is not there, even though we think that there's sati there because we're actually practicing out upon a sati. In that moment, what we have instead is confusion of doubt. So in that mind moment, there was no sati. But the next mind moment, there will be some sati. Especially if the sati is coming, I don't care which order, so long as I'm bringing myself into a state of sukha. And so we could say then that sukha and pity are, are the jhana factors. But I wouldn't say that any of them are more important than the others but they do kind of come in the order that you have to get rid of the hindrances first. And so even that hindrance of doubt about which one to do or another is kind of in the way of actually doing it. And so once the mind is completely free from the hindrances, now the, the thoughts are actually going to be wholesome, not going to be frail with doubt. And so naturally, the thought of wholesome breath and the wholesome breath are going to be interjoined. They kind of come together. But if you're thinking, but if your mind moment has, which one do I do first? You're not doing either one of them in that moment. You're just in a doubt at that mind moment. Mm -hmm. And so when does the sati come back? Well, the sati hopefully will come back when you actually do take that deep in breath because we're pegging the sati to that breath, mindful. And in fact, that's something, the way that the sutta is uh, constructed, 
with every one of the stages. It says it in the sense of mindfully. Now that word is the English language, but it's called sati. Sati on the in-breath, he develops joy. Sati on the out-breath, he develops joy. Thus one trains oneself. And so we always go back to that sati on the in-breath and sati on the out-breath while we're training in sukha, while we're training in uh, um, um, the feeling of being uh, a winner or the feeling of um, being successful, the feeling of being a lion, the feeling of right attitude. So we're developing that while we breathe in mindfully and while we breathe out mindfully. So every stage of Anapanasati has that sequence in it that has the verb to train or to develop. And also every one of them has mindfully breathing in, I train or develop to do this task. And then the next sentence will mindfully, he train, uh, mindfully he will breathe out, training to do that. Yep. So mindfully he breathes in, training to have sukha. Mindfully he breathes out, training to have uh, sukha. Mindfully breathing in to develop uh, pity. Mindfully training to breathe out, or mindfully breathing out, training to do uh, pity. This is the way that it's actually stated in the in the sutta over and over again. Hopefully, we get the idea from the Buddha, because we only have his words. We don't have his emphasis upon this, other than the repetition of the words. That always in our language, repetition gives more emphasis. And yes. everything has to be repetitive over and over and over again. We've already talked about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Yep. Mm. Okay, yep. so that repetitive part, over and over and over again. Mindfully breathing in, we train for sukha. Mindfully yep. breathing out, we train for sukha. The, uh, there was a video with Santikaro talking about Bhikkhu uh, translation that he was doing, and he said using uh, the breath sort of like a metronome in that way. It was sort of like... Okay. I don't really even know if I really know what a metronome is, but I the way I, I took that and I started practicing this way was sort of like, I guess, at the top or at the bottom, whatever it is, like the beginning of the breath. And now we train ourselves on this in-breath, this PT. And then at mm -hmm. the top again, it's like it goes off again. So sati, mm -hmm. the long out-breath, and then we train ourselves as we go down. The sukha. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, we don't have to do it in any particular order, but we do know that we do an in-breath followed by an out-breath, that we rarely do have an in-breath followed by another in-breath followed by another in-breath followed by another in-breath. The only time that it ever happens, I think, is for tokers. For who? Tokers. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> and now I've got so much in, and then I go... <sighs> Yeah, <laughs> but other than that, we don't do it like that. We normally do an in breath followed by an out breath, or in breath followed by an out breath. But mm -hmm. there's all kinds of ways that you can play 
with the breathing and to make it a, a toy, um, uh, something to um, pay attention to, knowing that there is great benefit in doing it. Not great benefit later, but great benefit right now, that this is the best thing that I could do right now, is to sit here and enjoy breathing. Yeah. And so this is the quality then that we bring with that breath, is, is that, um, and sometimes I say this to the students, uh, do you like breathing? Isn't, isn't that in-breath so refreshing? If you don't think so, then stop breathing for a while. And if you stop for a minute or two or three or five or ten, that next in-breath, if you ever get around to it, is going to be so delicious. But you've got to do it while you're still alive <laughs> because that breath is going to keep you alive. Yeah. That's how wonderful that in-breath is, is it's actually going to keep you alive. That's life itself. And this is, the old scriptures are just so full of this that everybody understood that breathing is life itself. Even in the precepts, when they talk about not killing, they're actually talking about panatipada. And there it is, anapana, taking the breath away, panatipada, to take away the breath. Mm. And also, whenever you die, the last breath that you have is always an exhale. That's why they call it expire, to breathe out. Mm -hmm. And then we don't take a new in-breath. So, if you think about every breath like that, then this breath is life-giving. It is sustaining your, your entire existence. You should be able to appreciate this new in-breath. Yeah. And so this is how we begin to see it, is, is that, wow, isn't it marvelous that I get one more breath? Let me enjoy it to its fullest. Yeah. I heard you say something recently and something that I heard uh, from Bikki Budadas' translation recently, too, that impacted me was hearing about one you said was, as you go to sleep, you can see the last breath. The last mind moment. You can know the last mind moment before you go to sleep if you're mindful. And then one from uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was the story of the monk. And he tells his two students to like stand here and stand here. And he walks up and he walks back down and then he walks in the middle of them. And, and then he just dies and lets them hold them because he knew exactly like like when that, the wished breath was his last breath. Because mm -hmm. he knew his breath so well. <laughs> he knew when he was going to die. Everybody does. Mm. The question is, what kind of mind state are we going to be in when it happens? Because everybody knows this is it. Mm. Interesting. Sometimes it's a false alarm. In the sense, like in an accident, in an automobile accident, and, that, and you see that this is going to happen. This is going to be deadly, and then somehow you survive. But everybody has that feeling. That this is it and generally they they get it on that last one yeah sometimes we don't even get the opportunity of that last mind moment an example of that would be a nuclear bomb goes off in the neighborhood and you're dead <laughs> that one mind moment you're awake and the next mind moment <laughs> there's not even a you anymore there <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 
That's um, really being blown away. is completely disintegrated in an explosion. So that can happen. But yeah. generally, that uh, another one was is when people um, uh, die in their sleep, and so then they they don't know. But by and large, Granny, who's going to die in the hospital, knows that she's going to die in in the hospital. I've seen that many times. I know people who have been with with. Uh, people dying right in front of them and they say that they know it's almost like a last breath like <sighs> wow and that happens all, a lot and sometimes gone. it's even verbal in the sense of I'll see you in hell <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a <laughs> that's quite the way to go. That's not the best way to not the best way out. <laughs> no, you know I so we, I just wanted to mention before I hop off here. It's getting late, but um, I yesterday I remember there was like getting to to sort of these states of satisfaction that was like very satisfied it was like wow this is like something that you know it's like life we should feel like this more often it's like this is why don't we feel this way more often well this is great as one of the first ones but later we get into i can do this any time wow this is so great and we can do it any time <laughs> that would be nice any time. Wow, this feels so nice. And we can do this any time. That's, yep. that's the knowledge. The real knowledge that, hey, I can do this. I can feel good any time. I don't have to feel bad. I can take a deep breath and just relax. And I can I, do that standing in line. I can do it at the visa office. I can do it while I'm handcuffed at the back of a patrol car. I can do it anywhere. I don't think I'm there quite just yet. <laughs> practice my boy practice <laughs> yeah I mean like that it was like a really deep like sense of like wow like fully okay you know yeah that's the practice is to get into that state over and over and over again and eventually thought so if I could do this I really can mm -hmm. that yep. we develop that winner's attitude yeah I can handle this yeah, that's what I'm working on. Enjoy. In fact, don't work. Play. <laughs> yeah, good point. Good point. I got to get back to kindergarten here. I was watching your video on that. <laughs> All right, Keishan. Well, we'll see you later now. All this right. has been an interesting talk. Absolutely. Thank you. See you later. Bye-bye.